0: Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles here with Logan Jones. Uh, one of the things we've been talking about a lot lately is just the internet in general and social media and how Google with search are really shifting the internet space. Um, there's a lot going on, especially with Facebook and Twitter and, and you know free speech and censorship uh, with Google. You know they arguably they likely have a monopoly. Um, so there's just a lot of things going on in the in the internet space right now that's that's in the mainstream news. You know Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Jack Dorsey and Sundar Pichai at, at Google have been, you know, having these these massive hearings that, um, you know, are, are very important for America to to pay attention to. And so we've been talking about it a lot, you know, here at Middle Tech. Um, and you watched the Social Dilemma, which came out recently, which you had some some pretty strong feelings about.
1: So why don't yeah. you talk about that? Yeah, I was pretty vocal about that. I just think that uh, these are some of the biggest issues facing our society right now. Um, our society is facing a ton of issues right now, but I feel like at the crux of all of them, or at least where things could go, uh, bad the quickest is what the social dilemma was centered around. So social media addiction, um, the amount of, of data and everything that these companies have on us and what they can do with that data, um, censorship and free speech. These are all things we've been talking about a ton on middle tech, but we've been talking about them a lot because we believe that they're very important. we want everyone to be aware of the landscape out there as it relates to, Uh, technology and social media and uh, the amount of data that these companies are collecting. So something that I've been very, very vocal on, something we've been discussing a lot. Um, So in this conversation, we actually get to talk about the legal, legal perspectives of it. We get some legal definitions from David on, you know, uh, the terms like what a monopoly actually is, why you don't want to have an, uh, uh, why you don't want to have a monopoly uh, in business and things and things like that. Um, But yeah, it's something that I think we need to continue talking about uh, because it's not going away anytime soon. Um, if not, we, it's going
0: to, if anything it's going to get worse, it's
1: going to get, well, I don't think if anything, it, it's definitely going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but you know, hopefully by it getting worse, that'll drive and inspire action, um, and hopefully, uh, lead to some real change. So, so one of the things that David talks about in this episode is this is not going to be something that we change and it works. It's going to be something that we have to tweak and we have to iterate and we have to work on and we have to be patient because, this is such a complex issue, and it's an ever-changing, ever-evolving issue. This this technology, when you look back before, I, we're like one of the last generations that's going to be able to remember what life was like before social media and before smartphones. Yeah, my and mom think, didn't
0: let me use Facebook till I was and, old. And very smartly. <laughs> sorry, and
1: I don't think I would let my kids use yeah. use that social media for a while. But just think about how much technology has evolved from when we were kids until now, until you know we're 24 years old. And it's going to continue to do that. There is if anything, it's going to speed up this rate of innovation. Now that we have this technology, it's just this compounding effect. There's more people aware of the power of technology and utilizing technology. So we want to continue talking yeah. about it because and we believe it's very, very
0: this awesome. episode was unique because David gave his, you know, attorney spin to it. You know, a lot of the ways that this thing is going to adapt over time is going to be through the law. Um, there are a lot of stat you know, a lot of, you know, laws in place that dictate how the internet um, is, is censored and what companies can do what and, and how media is, is treated, and so a lot of that is law. And so David dives into that a bit. And so um, it was great to have that discussion with David, from somebody who's had so much experience in the technology space over a long period of time, and get his perspective. But he also dove into, uh, you know, as a startup, a lot of the most important things you can do early is take care of uh, the the law side of of a business. You know, the, the incorporation, the bylaws. The IP, All those things are very important when you start a company. You don't want to get it wrong. Um, And so David dove into all of that, uh, which is important. Um, And he is really passionate about the startup space. So this is advice straight from his heart and advice from somebody that uh, is extremely experienced. You know, we said after we got off the podcast, like it was like wisdom just going straight through the mic. You just feel it. Yeah,
1: he was a very good speaker as well. He had some great wisdom um, just from his advice on his path from his early career into what he's doing currently. Uh, So we think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Before we get into this podcast, uh, we just want to give a little shout out here to one of our favorite events that um, comes around every November. So we've got Startup Weekend coming up November 20th through 22nd. This is an event that Evan and I uh, both did last year. We actually worked on Evan's Evan's project that he's currently working on now. That was pretty much when you first started working on it. Um, But we had a ton of fun just grinding it out and, and trying different things and meeting people and um, just being immersed in this startup startup scene here in Lexington that we love so much. Um, obviously, because of COVID, this is a little bit different than uh, years past. So this is going to be a combined startup weekend with Louisville and Lexington coming together. Um, it's also open to the rest of Kentucky as well. So it'll be primarily virtual, uh, but there are some in-person components that are optional uh, if you're in Lexington. So don't miss out on that. Um, you can get more information about that at Awesome Inc.'s website. Um, so we'll, that's something we're excited about looking forward to. Uh, But enough talking here, we're going to go ahead and get into our episode. We hope you guys enjoy it.
0: Welcome back, everybody. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. We're sitting down with David Wilbrand this week. He's a partner at Thompson Hine, and he's somebody that was referred to us by the Endeavor Group. Uh, So we're very grateful for the Endeavor Group for introducing us to some amazing guests so far. Uh, And David has an amazing uh, perspective on the ecosystem. He's been in it for a long time. He's helped many, many startups uh, with legal advice and being their attorney. Uh, And he has a perspective of um, just experience in the industry and within the entire ecosystem to give us a kind of a perspective over a period of time that, you know, many of our guests aren't able to give us because um, they're brand new founders. And, and David's been in the space for so long that, you know, we're able to uh, to get that perspective, not to call David old or anything, but, you know, he probably <laughs> probably uses that, that experience to his benefit. <laughs> but David, That's welcome. Nice.
2: I, I appreciate that. You know, two things. First of all, you use the word amazing twice, which I would prefer that you not do as part of the lead in. That's just the bar way too high. So, you know, I, I give just okay advice, you know, and I'm just okay attorney and yeah, experience, it means, you know, old age. So I, I've seen a few things, just a few laps around the track. So uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Awesome. Absolutely. So let's just start by uh, diving into your background here. Um, so if you want to start by where you're from and then transition it into education background, and then we'll get into professional background as well.
2: Yep, sure. So um, bounced around a lot as a kid, uh, but graduated from high school uh, from a public high school in suburban Cincinnati. So call that hometown. Um, As a consequence, um, went away for college, did my undergraduate at Harvard in Cambridge, Uh, was a history major, um, which everybody told me was preparation to go to law school, but I, I resisted that as long as I could. Um, came back to Cincinnati actually after graduation worked for the Ohio EPA for a year climbing smokestacks found that that was not uh, tapping into my passion and uh, frankly it was just a job that I didn't like and the only thing about it was that it was so bad that it forced me to make some hard choices about what I was going to do and where I wanted to go with my life so like a lot of people I said well I can make a hard choice or I can punt and just go to graduate school so that's what I did and I looked at my uh, looked at my background and said, well, I don't have the prereqs for medical school. I don't know anybody um, who's in business school, which is ironic given what I do now. Um, I decided I didn't want to pursue a PhD path. I toyed with that in college, but I, like, I decided I didn't want to go down that path. And so that sort of left law school by default and um, talked my way, frankly, into the University of Cincinnati Law School because the admissions process was already closed for the fall, uh, but I didn't want to wait for another annual cycle. So that was my sort of first experience in being entrepreneur-ish in terms of being resourceful, hungry, thirsty, and saying, I'm not leaving this room without closing the deal and, uh, and did it. It had a great experience there. Um, really have a lot of good feelings about that law school. And I remain connected to this day. And, uh, and there you have it.
0: So for the, for the guests that might be in a job that, you know, like, like you at that time didn't, don't enjoy at all, uh, what was it that took you, what was it that, that made you make a decision to leave that? And how did you feel afterwards? You know, it was probably scary, even though that you were having a bad experience and you weren't happy, but, you know, those experience, those kind of decisions are hard. And so what, what was it that, you know, snapped uh, the the stick for you and made you, made you, you know, get out of that job?
2: Yeah, I was totally miserable. I mean, it, it was, and I and I say that, that, and I'm grateful for that because sometimes, and, and we've all, we know people like this and, and sometimes we go through it in our own lives where if you're sort of, things are kind of just kind of okay, sort of lukewarm, you can wake up 15 years later and, and say, wow, you know, where did the time go? I wasn't really happy, but I wasn't really sad. I just sort of existed with the status quo. Nothing really catalyzed me to move. Um, that job that I had was, it was such a bad fit. And I was so unhappy that there was, li- there was literally nothing that I could do but make a decision to leave. I I had to go do something else because it was one of those where um, I hated getting out of bed every day um, and I just hated what I did. And so, Hey, nothing against the Ohio EPA. I'm glad there are people that do it. And there are people for whom it's a great career path. Uh, But for me, it was just, it was just still fitting, but I am grateful that it, that it was so bad that it was a spark for me. You know, it was kind of a kick in the butt that I needed at 23.
1: Yeah. That's sometimes really important to have something that is such a negative in your life that inspires you to kind of go forward and take those next steps into what ultimately turns into the career you're supposed to be in. Um, so I'd like to kind of lead that into, you know, how did you decide that not only law was the profession you wanted to go into, but specifically the startup law and entrepreneurship law. So kind of touch on uh, what made you take that path as as far as law goes. Yep.
2: Yep. And you're going to see a, a pattern developing here. So I, you know, went to law school and initially thought um, that I would be an environmental lawyer, because I did have an interest in that, which is why I went to the Ohio EPA. Um, found out very quickly during my first year that that most law firms look for environmental uh, lawyers to have a scientific background, more of an engineering background, which I did not have as a history major. I studied the Industrial Revolution, but that was about as close as I got, um, and that wasn't going to cut it. So my second year of law school, I thought, well, I'll be a, a labor lawyer, um, and I loved that. But ultimately pivot away from that simply because whether you're on the management side or the labor side, that sort of work was shrinking in the United States. You know, the labor movement just isn't what it once was. And so happened to spend the summer um, working at a law firm where my office was next to uh, a corporate lawyer. And like I said, I didn't know anybody in business. I came from a family that was sort of, it was, it was professionals. It was sort of doctors, lawyers, teachers, um, professors, that kind of family. It's not a, not a business family. And so business was very foreign to me. And uh, but spent the summer working at this firm. Got to know that person who was a corporate lawyer. Um, did a couple of projects with her. Really liked it. And uh, and the firm ended up making me an offer in the corporate group. And I took it. And so um, you know this was 1995. I graduated in 1996. And the minute I graduated in 1996, you know, for those of you who know anything about the history of startups, that was the beginning, of, for all intents and purposes, of the dot com bubble. And so. You know, I joined in August of '96, and the law firm was just throwing bodies at all of this new startup work that was coming in the door, and uh, and I loved it. So for the first time in my life, and at this point, you know what? I'm I'm 26, you know, going on 27. Um, finally found the thing that clicked, and I was like, ah, this is what I've been waiting for. So you know, law school was a reaction. Environmental law was kind of thinking about it. Labor law was kind of thinking about it. I can't say there was a deep passion there or a real attraction to it. I just felt like a, you know, a, a ball that was sort of bouncing around the pinball machine. Um, corporate law sort of ended up there randomly and serendipitously. Um, but the startup stuff, the first project I worked on, I just knew it. And I was like, this is the thing. And I've done it ever since and just fell in love with it and, and never stopped.
0: Was it the energy that you that it gave you that you're able to you know work on it and think about it all day? What what was it that just pointed you to say you know this is this is what I love you know because some people you know they have a hard time figuring that out and you know what was it that just said I I love this thing?
2: Yep, I liked it you know so it's changed over time what I what I love about it you know at 26 and 27 part of what I loved about it is a lot of the clients were my age so that was fun you know to to be 26 27 28 29 and working with people that you know, were, that I shared a generation with, Um, you know, now over time, now that that's not the case as much, and I have a little bit more, you know, gray in my fur here, um, or lack thereof, now it's more, you know, I get the chance to play more of a mentorship role and share that experience that you were talking about, you know, old age. And so it's a different kind of relationship that I have with clients. um, And one that, you know, I get a ton of nutrition out of, it's different, you know, but it's, it's a different kind of chemistry. And then I think you know, at the beginning, I was just so intrigued by. I was really intellectually stimulated by the work. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about startup law, and you know, venture capital financings, which tie into that, is you need to have a pretty good feel for lots of different areas, but you know, you you don't have the capacity or the time or the bandwidth to go super deep in one. So, you know you need to understand financing transactions, you need to understand securities laws, you need to understand basic corporate laws and rules, you need to understand basic tax laws, employment laws, intellectual property laws. all of these different areas of the law you have to have a sort of a working familiarity with, understand how they knit together and overlap um, and be you know sufficiently competent um, to be able to navigate your way through those issues as they arise and I saw that it was just an incredible challenge, so it was this like feast for my brain. So you know, the first 15 years of my career were spent mastering that. And then once you master it, which is where I am now, um, and sort of you know I've I've done it and I've got all the pattern recognition and I've seen it and you know been there done that and you know I'm not faced with a fact pattern that I haven't seen 10, 15 times in my life. Um, these things do repeat. Now it's different. Now you know really what the stimulation is is the sort of problems that we're solving. So I don't have to think so much on the solution side and figure that piece, that riddle out, I can go deeper on the problems and say, and I think I can be more insightful, and I'm better at helping founders sort of identify what the real issues are. I, I think probably early in my career, and I think young lawyers do this, you know, at 29, 32, 33, founder comes in and says, I need my appendix out, because I saw something on WebMD, and I'm feeling that pain. And I'm like, all right, let's get you in the operating room right away, and let's get the appendix out as soon as possible. And I took the appendix out, and I did great at it. But and it probably solved the problem, but maybe all I really had to do is ask a couple of questions, you know, kind of touch it once or twice with a pen, and it's fine. I know that now, right? And so that's what I find um, really stimulating about the job is, is really kind of uncovering and going a couple layers deep, saying, okay, do you really know the problem? You know, you think you know what the problem is. Let's explore that a little bit and have that conversation and tease that out and shape it and scope it and really get exactly to what the the heart of the matter is. And that's, that's what I'm really good at. And at this point, and that's what I really enjoy most.
1: Yeah. So would you mind almost kind of explaining um, your definition of law in layman's terms, because kind of the way you're describing this, it almost seems like it's, you're, you're advising, you're consulting on law for, for startups a lot of the time. So kind of give us a a broad definition of um, what, how you define law as it relates to startups. And then I've kind of got a follow-up question about Uh, you know, what the first steps towards engaging with a lawyer are when you're when you're starting a startup.
2: Sure. So, I mean, think of the law as just it's the software of our civilization. So it's the rules that we that we comply with and we abide by. And whatever you do, you know, you have to do within the parameters that are set by those laws. You know, and just like with software, you can evolve it. Um, You can add different features and functions. You can change the rules. yeah uh, sometimes it breaks you know that happens with with the law too and so um it essentially keeps it keeps the world or at least our corner of it from just devolving into anarchy and you know guns in the street kind of stuff um it 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 says look we've all agreed as a people that we're going to comply with these certain standards and these certain rules and regulations and the job of a lawyer is to have a handle on that in a sense, as to how these rules and regulations and standards fit together and then help their clients navigate that and hopefully work towards an outcome which works for the benefit of all. If you're a litigator, you're dealing with issues on the back end. People are fighting. And so we're saying instead of violence, what we're going to do is we're going to get in a courtroom, we're going to figure out you know who's at fault and who's to blame, and then what are the damages, who has to pay whom what, and how do you sort that out? If you're a corporate lawyer like I am, it's on the front end, and instead what we're saying is here are the rules and the regulations and the standards that we have to live inside of. You people want to do a deal, okay? You want to build something together. You want to work together. You want to collaborate together. We're going to help create a piece of paper that's going to refine this and and lay it out with some level of precision so that everybody has common expectations um, going
1: in on the front end. Man. I think that's my favorite definition I've ever heard of law and so appropriate for this podcast yeah. too, being a technology podcast.
0: No, that was good. That was definitely a great explanation that I'm sure takes the experience you have to to give it so easily and so fluid like that. So uh, let's jump in and kind of start giving some some tangible advice here. So if I'm a brand new startup founder, what is the first thing I need to consider when I'm starting my company when it comes to to law?
2: Yeah, I would say the first thing you need to, you need to do is stop working on it on your employer's computer. <laughs> that would be that would be my first tip. Um, you know, people ask me all the time. They're like, "When is the right time to talk to you, David?" And I'm like, "The right time to talk to me is when you have that first little itch that says I probably ought to talk to a lawyer." And it probably is when you're still working your day job. And I'm happy to do that. You know, and this kind of gets to a, a question you start to pose about when is the right time. Um, what I would tell you is, is I don't put advertisements on Billboards or on the sides of buses, you know and i don 't sponsor the Cincinnati bengals um, or the Kentucky Wildcats. My marketing is through giving away my knowledge and experience, and I do that with people on the front end and so and, and i'm not, and i 'm not alone in that, so I, what I would sort of say is a threshold matters of course you know I want people to work with me, and I want you to come to me, but just as a general matter, if you are an entrepreneur or a wantrepreneur or a budding founder or whatever, um, first things first, don't hesitate to reach out to, to a lawyer and say, hey, can I have a free consultation? You know, Telephone call, take you out to breakfast, something like that. If they say no, boom, that's a hard stop. That person doesn't do this. Because anybody who practices in this area knows that giving away stuff for free on the front end is just, it's the culture. And it's required because people money for it, you know, we're expensive resources and, and they don't even know if they're going to do something. That. So you have to be prepared to, to give first like that. So, you know, what I would say is if you're thinking about it, first things first, call me or somebody like me. And what I would encourage you to do is start to create some bifurcation in your life. You know, you've got your work life, your day job life, and then you've got what is probably a side hustle life and try to keep them separate and distinct. Try not to work at the side hustle. You know, when you're when you're doing your day job, use different different email addresses, use a different computer, um, you know, different hardware, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want this side hustle stuff to become entangled in your day job stuff so that your employer has an argument that they actually own it, you know, because generally speaking, what you create for your employer, they own. That's kind of fair. Right. That's what they're paying you salary for. Um, But, you know, these things get tricky when you're working the side hustle thing. So try to try to be sensitive um, to that bifurcation.
1: That seems like pretty specific advice that maybe you've seen. You've seen that play out uh, either not so well or or maybe somebody's gotten out of that. But what's what's on that same kind of vein? What's some common trip ups that maybe are similar to that that you see uh, entrepreneurs making as they set out to start their own companies?
2: Yep. So, so that's a big one. And, and that's, by the way, relatively easy to navigate. Um, and, it, and it needs to be because it happens almost every time, because you don't run into very many entrepreneurs that are doing something that's like, so it's completely different from their day job, right? I mean, they, they're probably they want to pursue this new venture because of, you know, what they've learned over the course of their life, including where they're currently working. So there's probably some natural overlap, you can manage it, but you just have to be careful. And and then part of the advice that I give is I just and this is not legal advice it's more sort of soft advice how to think about managing that exit transition with some level of sensitivity and care um, because you know people sue for lots of reasons but the main reason that people sue is not because you know they they on a principal basis because they feel like you know a legal document was breached or they were harmed under the law they tend to sue because they're angry. And they're not allowed to punch you in the face. So they sue as a way to sort of express their emotions. So if you can manage that, even if you are breaching your employment documents, you're probably going to get out okay. Um, So long as you can get out with a handshake and everybody feels all right about it. Okay, so there's that. The next mistake that I see a lot of founders make is just, you know, giving away the company too soon. Um, Not being thoughtful about, You know, who's really in this with me? Who's gonna be in this foxhole for years and years and years and years and years? And, you know, promising chunks of the company to people who end up um, flaking out real quick. And even if you don't have it on a piece of paper, you know, unfortunately, what you've done is you've given that person an argument that they have a stake in your company. And depending on how much energy that person wants to put into that argument, that can create real problems for you down the road, you know, as you build your company and try to attract future investors, and you just don't like that sort of mushiness and ambiguity floating around. So be really, really careful and thoughtful about team and equity allocations. And and then when you're starting to get into that part of the process, that's probably when I'm going to start doing real work in terms of helping you actually organize this company that's going to be the bucket for this idea, and then deciding who owns what.
0: Yeah. I I just went through this exercise and when I was going through it, I noticed online, there's a lot of free, you know, resources, there's templates, there's places you can go and fill in your company information and it'll auto generate, you know, these documents. Um, I didn't want to go that route just because I had a feeling in my gut that this is really, really important. I want a lawyer to look this over. Um, but a lot of, a lot of founders go to, you know, some of these, um, you know, electronic document providers that give you templates and just use those. Uh, why, why, why in your, in your perspective, uh, should a founder absolutely go with an attorney, you know, if given that they're serious about starting a company and not use these templates um, and what are your thoughts on these, these providers of these templates kind of help them navigate that space.
2: Yeah. So I'm not anti-template. Um, you know, we work with templates, you know, it's not like every contract we create is, you know, fresh parchment paper and feathered pens and ink and red wax. Um, but, you know, I do think having a lawyer on the sidelines to help to be there as a potential resource for you with questions because you're inevitably going to have some questions is valuable um, even if it's just someone to hold your hand even at at the end of the day, if it's just someone to tell you that yeah, you're fine, you're doing it right, you're thinking about all the right stuff, just keep going um, you know that alone can be can be valuable, so you know it's it's something that we do we drive um you know most of our Clients into you know standard processes um, to put these you know go through this corporate formation process because it is very template driven um, in so many ways. But you know I do think particularly because people like me are willing to do it for for free or for a very low price. So why not take advantage of that?
0: Yeah, and I imagine the longest the founder could wait to engage a lawyer is is you know that that point that they absolutely have to is when they start raising money or capital of some kind, right? Um what's what's the role of a lawyer when they when they actually start raising raising capital and what do you help with there?
2: Yep. So, you know, the the, the big piece there is, I mean, you really have, uh, you know, a couple of things happening. You're selling a security. So, in theory, the securities laws are activated. Now, you know, the good news is at the federal and even at the state level, at the earliest stages of raising money, the exemptions are so broad and open-ended. Um, the securities laws are essentially a non-issue. Now, just pretend that I put a lot of qualifications around that so people at my law firm don't freak out. But, um, you know, that's not hard. But it's it's something that's worth paying attention to. And it, it's helpful to have a lawyer there that can at least sort of provide a nod and say, yeah, we're good. Um, so that's that's one piece of it. But the larger piece of it is, is making sure that you know, you're pricing the round correctly and you're pricing the shares correctly so that people end up with the right number of shares and the right kinds of shares and the appropriate allocation of ownership so that there's no confusion at the end of the day about who owns what. I mean, a point that I hit hard with clients and when I'm speaking with groups and whatnot is that you know, 100% is a hard limit on a cap table. You know, We can talk about wanting to give 150% all day every day, and that's cute, but that doesn't work in an Excel spreadsheet. So you need those ownership percentages to foot and add up to 100%. And why do you care about that? Well, the reason you care about that is it's not just about keeping score. It's because when you ultimately sell the company, the money that's available for distribution to the owners gets distributed in accordance with those ownership percentages. So, you know, you're starting your company because you want to solve a problem and you're really excited to team with these people and you want to go create something new and interesting and all that good stuff. And that, those are all the reasons why you should start a company. But there's nothing wrong with wanting to make money. And the place where you're probably going to make money is when you sell the company. And when you sell the company, then you're going to take those proceeds and you're going to need to chop them up among the owners. And it's really helpful to have a cap table that's complete and accurate in order to do that. because. Otherwise, people end up getting really angry, and that's when you end up calling the litigation people down the hall. So, you know, that's one of the things that you want to do is to help that foot. Because I will tell you, sometimes I do walk into situations where people, you know, think they have sold things and they haven't really sold them or sold them right, and it's it can be pretty messy. Um, Anything can be fixed. You know, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't like to operate by terrifying people. Um, And I get that sometimes, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get to where you need to go. So, you know, no judgment, but it's easier to do it right the first time than to fix it after the fact. I can tell you that every single time.
1: Yeah. And you deal mostly in uh, mergers and acquisitions. So is what's, what's some of the mistakes that you see happening there? Cause you, you just kind of said it there. You see things happen that, you know, nothing can, there's nothing that can't be undone. But what are some things that when people are going to sell their companies, that seems like a nightmare scenario to be at that point when it's time to make that transaction and you screw something up? So what's what's something bad that you've seen happen or ways to prevent uh, yeah. going down the wrong path?
2: It is. It is. I think what, what tends to screw up exit transactions, I would say the biggest thing that tends to screw up exit transactions are um, – I'll offer a couple of thoughts. One is intellectual property. So – the buyer really wants to make sure that you've got the IP to support the product and the technology that they're interested in. And if you've not done a good job of everything from um, having the traditional agreements that run from employees to the company or independent contractors or design studios or whatever, back to the company, making sure that the company owns all the IP, um, you don't want any ambiguity around that. if you've been doing, you know, co-development stuff with third parties, you want to make sure that, you know, the IP chain of ownership and title is very clear. Um, even with customers, you know, it's it's not uncommon, especially for big companies, to sort of say, oh, you're a little rinky-dink company and, you know, we're using you for software. Well, we want to own that software or at least the piece of it that we offer input around. And it's not fair, but they do it sometimes. And if you're not careful, well, maybe you've given up ownership to some of that. So... Um, that kind of that kind of stuff is is really important. And if the IP house is messy, um, then you're in trouble. Sometimes what I've also seen is people have just you know they smuggle in code that they don't own. You know they cut and, they cut and pasted it from a prior job or something. And if that gets smoked out, that's a big problem. Um, so you know the IP piece is a is a big piece of it. Another thing, and, and I don't want to get too technical, but I can I can keep it light, is that you know a lot of a lot of my clients and a lot of um, you know startups, particularly in in the Midwest, are SaaS companies and B2B SaaS companies. And when you're a B2B SaaS company, that means you know you've built software that you are, you know, licensing under a subscription agreement to businesses, you know, to help them operate their companies. And B2B SaaS companies have, there are very specific ways by which they're valued. You know, there's something called annual recurring revenue, which is sort of like bookings. It's not gap revenue. It's different. Um, but it's very SaaS specific and people in the SaaS space understand it and they know how to how to track it and measure it. And SaaS companies are generally valued as a multiple of ARR. And um, if you are not careful with your SaaS contracts in terms of, Being very clear and direct, and a lot of this is is more accounting than it is legal, about making sure that it gets defined and categorized as SaaS revenue, it might just be service revenue. And the problem is, is that SaaS revenue, you know, sometimes can go, you know, 6 to 10x ARR is a pretty typical valuation range, but I've done deals where it's been 20x, you know, 25x ARR. But service revenue, from a valuation perspective, it's usually like 1.5x, 1x, 2x. So that's a massive value swing, you know you just went from something worth ten million dollars to one million dollars right um, so you've got to watch that and I've seen that happen to saAS companies um much to their detriment
0: yeah that's that's all that's all great stuff and for the listeners we you know we we encourage you to reach out to david and if you have follow up questions, uh, you know he'd be happy to talk to you' all that's what that's what he loves doing so we encourage you to to do that. We want to transition here to Talk about some some relevant topics. One of the biggest that's been on my mind recently, you know, and it's related to to the law, is what's going on with Twitter uh, and Google and Facebook related to antitrust issues and misinformation and you know how they're classified. Uh, I want to jump into this. Um, I want to first ask, you know, what are your opinions uh, about these companies and, and what they've become today? You know, what, when you look at these companies, what do you, what do you think of?
2: Yeah, I you know I I am of a very mixed mind i i am certainly one of those people who thinks that you know much of social media is toxic and it's poisonous and it's irredeemable you know and um and that people will be better off you know limiting or eliminating il- eliminating it um in massive ways but of course you know that's tilting at it windows it's the genie is out of that bottle and we're never going back so um, the question is, is how do we think about social media, and how do we how do we manage social media? And the speech issues are are really interesting. So um, I, I gave you a sense of the era in which I started doing this. My first year of law school, I finished in 1994, and I worked for a law firm. And this was before Section 230, the Communications Decency Act, which you know, not to get too hyper specific, but it comes up all the time in the sorts of issues you're talking about. And um, we were working with a client that was thinking about um, setting themselves up as an internet service provider, an ISP. And you know, so I'm 23, 24, and I'm asked to write a memo about this. And in the memo, I basically told them not to do it because I said there is – you know, there's a body of law, or at least there's a lot of concern out there that these internet service providers – I'm not even talking about social media companies. Social media didn't exist in 1994. I'm talking about an internet service provider that – they were going to be treated basically as the publishers of this content. Anything that anybody put out on it, um, they weren't going to be treated as telephone companies, which is sort of like, hey, look, you're just a means of communication. We're not going to hold you responsible for what gets transmitted over the telephone line. But instead, you know, whatever somebody put up on the internet, you know, the information superhighway then cyberspace you'd be liable for. And I was like, that's just too great a risk. And then of course, this was a great lesson. They looked at me and they're like, you're kidding me, right? Like, we're doing this thing. There's too much money to be made as an ISP. And they made the right decision. I mean, they ended up being a huge ISP. Good thing they, they didn't listen to, you know, 23 year old David Wilbrand about, you know, how to operate their business model. Good lesson in terms of trying to be sensitive in terms of what your clients want, not just saying no, because it's easy as a lawyer to tell, tell somebody no. That was a great lesson for me to learn. But what happens is, is that, you know, I think 96, 97 was Section 230. And the notion was we want to protect people that are, engaged in the internet um, and, and helping to facilitate the distribution of this kind of content and we don't want them to feel like they're at risk. So we're gonna create some boundaries, you know, the real nasty stuff, the vicey stuff. Yeah, you got to keep an eye on that. You gotta pull that down. But for the most part, you know, we're not we're not gonna apply things like defamation and libel and slander laws and that sort of stuff um, to the extent that you're you know you're distributing that over the internet. But, you know, we see social media birth and born and now there's a lot of controversy around this, right? Because they're clearly moderating their platforms and should right? We want them to anybody who who thinks that social media would be improved by being wide open has lost their damn mind like no way, no way. I mean you you know you think about the way it works now with the level of moderation that takes place. What would happen in terms of violence and pornography? and vice, and other sorts of issues, it would be horrific, and it would absolutely destroy our political, social, and cultural system. So we want moderation, okay? The question is, what kind of moderation, and how do we moderate it, and who moderates it, and how do we handle these questions? Um, And what I would say, and it may not be a popular answer, I think what we're seeing is exactly what's happening is exactly the way it's supposed to happen. You know, people want, like, Firm answers. And I get that. We all do, right? But sort of like, you know, okay, let's just resolve this. What's the algorithm? You know, or who's the moderator? Or within what period of time does something have to get pulled down? Well, these things are they are constantly evolving. It is super dynamic. So the way you do it, we're just going to iterate this forever. And it's the only way this is ever going to happen and gonna work. So social media does some stuff. You know, society's kind of like, "Yeah, we're not sure about how this works. Let's go have a congressional hearing and have people yell at each other a little bit, but maybe thrash it out in the public and see how we feel about it. And then maybe we adjust the algorithm a little bit, tweak the laws, you know, change our software, and then we go a little bit further, and then we do it again. It's always going to be messy, and everybody's always going to be a little bit upset and, um, you know, upset about the way the situation is unfolding. But it's good. It's good we're having these conversations. It's good that these congressional hearings are taking place, even though for the most part you know what we see is a little ludicrous and sometimes disappointing. But um, I think it's really the only way in a functioning society, this kind of advanced technology, we can, we can sort this out. So I just gave you a long monologue. Um, I hope you're still awake, uh, but that's sort, of, that's sort of where I settle out on this.
1: I think uh, you really hit the nail on the head when you say it has to be iterative. And that's kind of something we've been discussing when we cover this kind of thing on our our live streams and things that we do. One, we think there needs to be kind of some sort of committee formed. But I think that's the second part of it is that people have to realize this is, I mean, think about how quickly technology has evolved just since social media started. When Mark Zuckerberg and all of these people started these platforms, they had no idea they were going to be in the middle of this controversy of um, talking about, you know, Free speech, essentially, in our, in a time when when it's such a hot topic in our country. So, and I think that even if you were to try to make a solution and say, "All right, let, we're going to make this solution, we're going to apply it right now in 2020," well, okay, in the next five years, there's no telling what social media is even going to look like with the, well, the with the rise of up. yeah with the with the rise of virtual reality and augmented reality. Yeah. Things are going to continue to change, especially with deep fakes and artificial intelligence and all that stuff. So, I love the fact that you're calling out. We're not going to be able to just, boom, here's an answer. It's going to work. It's going to have to be, oh, okay, we need to tweak this. This new advancement, kind of, we're going to need to tweak that here. Um, I think that kind of hits the nail on the head. I'm sure Evan's got some thoughts here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, did, I just wanted to dig in and ask, you know, a, a different question is, are you okay with these businesses making these decisions versus some kind of group that the the people have elected to make these moderation decisions? Because, you know, these companies might come with their own biases, And and how do you view on who should be making these moderation decisions? I agree with you that there should be moderation. Um, But I don't know if it's the social media providers jobs to be doing that. And maybe they should figure out some way to get, you know, some kind of other uh, outside third party involved that the people are able to look at and trust versus, you know, the head figures of Mark Zuckerberg and and Jack Dorsey. I'm sure they don't want that on their shoulders, because at the end of the day, it's on them if their companies are making these decisions. How do you view who should be making these decisions? You know, that I want to ask that question, a little bit different question than I asked before.
2: Yeah, no, I think it it can cut both ways. Here's what's interesting. They're not gonna say it. They kinda of wanna make the decisions. So here's what I would here's what I would compare it to. So a couple of years ago, you know, there was the the exception to two hundred thirty that was put in place around sex trafficking. And it basically said, We're gonna make the we c we're gonna make an exception to this sort of blanket immunity, I'm using that word very loosely, not not in a legal sense, but in sort of the way the protection that we find that we provide for these social media companies when it relates to as it relates to sex trafficking and prostitution. Now who's going to be against that, right? I mean the whole idea is is what we want to do is we want to make sure that these companies are forced to moderate that content and pull it down uh, because they know they'll be held liable if they don't. Seems good. Well here's the unintended consequence. You know who has the resources to do that? Facebook has the resources to do that. You know who doesn't have the resources to do that? Craigslist. That's why Craigslist doesn't have personals anymore. Um, Lots of other small websites shut down completely because they were afraid that they weren't going to be able to comply with the law. So now what you've done is you've enhanced the power of Facebook in the marketplace, which is why… You're hearing now Facebook is sort of saying we don't necessarily mind if you ratchet, you know, if you if you change the chemistry around Section 230. But then you've got companies like Reddit saying, "Whoa, slow your roll," because if you do that, and then everybody gets to congratulate themselves that now we're holding the companies liable and they're putting their feet to the fire, Reddit may have to say, "We're out of business. We can't do this." Um, and now you've you've more deeply entrenched, you know, a single um, a single entity and that's generally not what we like to see in a free enterprise and a free market system. So, you know, it really is this what gets so tricky about this is there are this is multidimensional chess in terms of how these move and, and where people's motivations are. Wow. One of the things yeah. that you've suggested is that, you know, there's an argument and some make it, it doesn't have much traction. But the idea is that Facebook has reached a point where it should just be treated as a utility at this point. So, you know, utilities is how you get your power, how we get our energy. They're essentially, you know, there's a, they're incredibly regulated. Um, They're as public as they are private. Um, There are there are boards that are sort of quasi public, quasi private that oversee these sorts of things. They make decisions on behalf of the public interest. It's there aren't really businesses anymore. They're public goods or public services that are delivered in this kind of regulated way. And you know, we made a decision as a as a country 100 years ago that this was how we were going to handle that. you could do that with Facebook. Now, you know, there are a lot of people would, would say that's not fair. That's not – it's inconsistent with capitalism. It's going to shut down innovation. Um, it might be perceived as stealing wealth from the Facebook stockholders. Um, and, and it could be, depending on how you do this. And there are a thousand different ways that you could skin that cat. I'm just kind of ripping through it. But um, it's certainly an approach that you, you could take. So to your point, essentially the argument you're making is these shouldn't be private anymore. This is basically public. It's a public good. It's that monopolized that we just have to um, treat that reality as it is. And let's just treat it as a utility and regulate it as such. Um, you're not alone in holding that perspective, but it's definitely a minority view, at least at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd want the, you know, the government to, to do that, but, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, I just want whatever's best, you know, for society. Right. You know, if, if that's what it's going to take, then I'd said want that, um but I'm not sure, and I don't think time will tell uh but it's at a it's at a important point in history you know I don't know if you watch the social dilemma uh and that's scary stuff you know there's been pieces of of media put out like that you know over the past several years, but I think that one you know that one set all kinds of records as far as viewership goes and conversation that's happened afterwards um and I just saw something on Twitter today you know I can't guarantee that it's true, but it came from a a, a source that I trust that you know the the amount of uh, Facebook employees that now are happy with the work that Facebook does and believe it causes you know good in the in society has gone down twenty six percent over the last recent you know time frame. I think it was in the last year, a um, couple of years, which is drastic. You know, that's scary to think that the employees at the company that controls information are, you know, that that unsure of how, you know, beneficial they are to society. So I think we're we're getting close to a point where some some major decisions will have to be made. But, you know, I, I am for um, and I think, you know, I'd lean towards, you know, your perspective. Let's just keep iterating and, and make it a collaborative effort between the government and, and Jack Dorsey and, and Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, Sundar Pichai and, you know, these people that are that are leading these companies. Let's make it a collaboration. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm for whatever's best for society. I think, you know, like I, like you said earlier, the cat's out of the bag. So we just have to figure out how to, how to deal with it now
2: um we we do we do and i think i think part of what we've seen and this is what discourages i think a lot of people including me is the behavior of our congress people has been abysmal they're completely ignorant and incompetent as it relates to these issues not as human beings i mean look say what you want about politicians but to get to that station in life you know there's a level of you know intellect drive ambition and talent that's required so they're not idiots but what they've not done is they've not taken the time to educate them, educate themselves, to go in, you know, with some level of base knowledge and understanding and to be able to speak with some level of intellect and precision as it relates to these issues. It's just, it's it's a combination of seeking sound bites um, on the one hand, you know, little clips that they can throw up on their Twitter feed or on their websites, um, or just having no idea what they're talking about. And we, we need to do better in that yeah. regard. When I was... No
0: watching those hearings I was really disturbed by the fact some of those politicians before they asked their question made sure to get in some kind of political remark related to their party and the and how they're you know judging the other side you know they made it a political issue um, out of something that's so important in society right now I, that just really disturbed me I thought it was extremely inappropriate that you know they would lead their question with some kind of political remark about how you know the left or right is you know trying to attack you know the belief system of of the other you know I just thought that was you know, really, really sad to see.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't think that anyone like that, that point that you just brought up about things being so interconnected, I doubt that many of those people who are making these new regulations are realizing, okay, well, if we ratchet down the regulations on Facebook, that essentially gives them more power to become a monopoly, which is pretty much why we're in this position in the first place. That's what these hearings are about or about these, you know, seeing if these companies truly are functioning as monopolies and deserve to be broken up because they're so anti-competitive now. Um, so that's one of the another question I kind of want to ask is what's what would be the legal definition of monopoly? And kind of let's dive into why we don't want monopolies happening uh, in as far as ca- in a capitalist society.
2: Now, that's a really interesting question and a challenging one right now as it relates to the Internet. So the, the, the general view of a monopoly monopoly is that you're talking about a company that's achieved such a level of market share. That competition is impossible or virtually impossible, and um, they are the only option they are the only alternative Standard Oil, of course, exhibit a in terms of you know what was deemed a monopoly the The tricky thing is that traditionally in the United States especially, um, the number one measure of determining whether or not a company has achieved monopoly status is looking at pricing uh, because it makes sense, right? if you're a company and you've achieved monopoly status, you can charge very high prices, right? Because there's no competition. So if I'm the only grocery store in the world, I can charge you $100 for a gallon of milk because there's no competition, okay? And so the government would look at that and say, clearly this is an an indicator that we're dealing with a monopoly and we need to break it up or we need to regulate it. And the problem with the internet is it's free. So whenever these challenges have come up, you know, the easy answer for the companies that are under the uh, you know, under the magnifying glass, are like, what are you talking about? It's free. Or in the case of Amazon, super cheap, right? So, you know, all these Fang companies would just tell you, we're not monopolies, because we're providing goods and services to consumers at incredibly low prices. You know, that's that means we must be subject to competition, intense competition, right? Um, but others would of course say no. It's a very limited view of what a monopoly is. A monopoly can mean and be other things. You know, the counterposition is is that we live in a you know techno capitalist society for the first time, with a different meaning of what a good is and what a service is. And you know, one way to look at whether a monopoly exists is at pricing, but maybe we should also look at innovation. You know, and many people would say that with the fang companies getting so big, that they're stopping out innovation. It's hard for startups to get traction because it's too easy for the fang companies to uh, mimic and copy what they're doing, or you know just come in and do an aqua hire uh, before they become too much of a threat and buy them and absorb them into the Borg, right? So, um, and that's a common complaint that people make and say, look, this is this is this is an indication that this is a monopoly. But of course, the counterposition is, is these are just really good businesses. These are really good companies. They're very well run. There's not stopping competitors from entering the marketplace. And why do we want government regulators making these decisions? Why do we want judges making these decisions? Shouldn't we let the market choose? And if an entrepreneur wants to come forward with a new and better Facebook, they can do it tomorrow. Um, And then other people would say, well, that's that's naive. And that's the debate.
1: Yeah. That's one that we've had too, is just, you know, once these companies get so big, like part of me wants to be an optimist and believe that these companies are going to continue to innovate and build great products because they have so much data and can build such incredible user experiences for us. This is something that Evan and I were talking about in regards to Google, and you know they pay a lot of money to have that be the default search engine on Safari. And it's like, yeah, I, I almost don't even mind it, though, because the user experience is, is is so great. So that's like the side that I want to err on, but at the same time, that's just not sustainable, I don't think. Eventually, you're going to run into... There's just innovation is going to stall out. You have to have you have to have opportunities for competition to come in and push that needle forward as far as innovation. Goes. Well, and
0: related to you know, you brought up pricing. You know, that's one of the ways you can tell if there's a monopoly or not in the world of you know search and, and social media. Pricing is really in the form of seeing ads. You know, how many ads do you actually see there? Because um, the product is you know the the user, and so the user is being monetized by putting ads in front of them. And one of the things that's bothered me about Google recently, and this is very um, apparent is if you go Google any kind of uh, term that relates to um, a product where there's a lot of brands that play in that space. So if you go search for pa- if you type in on Google paper towels, well the entire fold, which means that entire page is going to be nothing but ads. And to me that says, well how can Google do that? That's not a good user experience. Well it's because they have monopoly. It's because they own 88 percent of the search market share. Uh, 88% of the time when somebody goes to look up any kind of information on the internet it's going to be Google. And the only way that they could get away with having ads on the entire page when you search for something in my mind is that they have you know a monopoly. And so that we we were talking about that, you know, on Friday. Um but I think that's the way we look at um Google as I mean I I think it's a monopoly, but I also understand what you're saying was they've created the world's best experience when it comes to search because they have so much data. And so the next question I wanted to ask was, you know, the massive problems in the world, you know, search, healthcare, um, autonomous driving, you know, there's a lot of spaces where data is the product that uh, is the fuel that leads to an amazing product and a user experience. And in order to solve those problems, you probably have to have one company that aggregates the majority of that data. Um, And so, you know, you, you mentioned a term earlier, I think you said in um, you know, in the internet age—you called it something. I like, I like what you called it, uh, but in the age of artificial intelligence and solving big pr- problems using data, you almost have to have one company with all that data to solve it. Um, and so, what, what, are your, what's your perspective on, you know, the future of monopolies? What do you think is going to end up happening here? You know, because, I, I, I came up with this debate and I came across it on on Twitter. One of my friends had had posed the question. I wonder how long it's going to take for the government to start cracking down on Tesla. Because they have such a large lead in autonomous driving, and in order to solve that problem massively across the country, you have to have the data, and, and Tesla's going to have that way before anybody else. And if you beat other car companies to that, there's an argument to be said that everybody's just going to default to Tesla one day because they have so much data and they're driving around, and they're so much cheaper because the, the the AI is driving the car, not a person. And you know, there's all kinds of intricacies related to Tesla, but it is on the similar path of Google where they have now acquired all this information to solve a problem. And it's not search, it's autonomous driving. Um, and so people are posing the question, well, what's the future going to look like related to Tesla and the government cracking down on them? When does that happen? Uh, you know, you kind of posed the question earlier, but I'd love to hear you try to answer it. What do monopolies look like going forward in the age of data and the internet?
2: Yeah, and these things all tie together because there there is a company that is consolidating all this data on a massive scale, which gives them incredible incredible competitive advantage. And you know what that company is?
0: The government? China. China.
2: China. Jeez. And so what a lot of these, you know, the U.S.-based fan companies, right? Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google. One of their big arguments that they're using against um, regulation, against being broken up, against, you know, people that are coming at them from what we call an antitrust perspective um, and it 's a sort of an antiquated old word, but it basically means you're you're breaking up trusts, and that was a way that companies used to be um, organized. so antitrust means to you know break them apart um, would be to say, Look, you know this is coming, so do you want it to be done by American companies or do you want it to be done by China? You know pick because if you break up Facebook, if you break up Google you've limited the ability of, you know, in theory this is their argument, you know, a US-based company with US cultural values to have the ability to interact and compete at a global scale against what's happening in China. It's a legitimate argument. Yeah, um, that's
1: one that's a perspective I hadn't even considered yet. Yeah, that's wow. I'm going so to I'm have to add it, that to the debate.
2: No, it's, you got you got to think about it and I will tell you and, and I, I I want to be very careful um, not to get overly political here, but you know, one of the, it's, it's interesting. One of the issues that it seems as if um, I'm a step on thin ice, you know, particularly on election night, but it's one of the issues where it, where it seems like um, even the left likes what Trump has done. Is you know, everybody uh, that I talk to that doesn't like Trump says, well, he does seem like he's right on China, um, and I actually disagree. And I feel like I'm a voice in the wilderness now because it feels like every Republican and every Democrat is aligned around, you know, taking a more adversarial and challenging view to China. And I'm not suggesting that we should, you know, roll over um, on our backs and and not push back on China where we need to push back on China. But what I would offer is this observation: China is a rocket ship. China is growing. China is exploding. China is way bigger than the United States is. China is the future. So we have a choice. We can either connect ourselves, link ourselves to that rocket ship, or we could stand apart. And what I can tell you is, is if we stand apart as we are now, we're not winning this. We might win it today. We might feel like we're winning it in three years, but in 20 years, we'll be smoked. And so the decision we have to make is the decision that you know, Great Britain made following World War II. They saw that that the British Empire was the sunset was, you know, the sun was setting on the British Empire, and they saw that the United States was the ascendant power and they attached themselves to the United States. And it had given Great Britain, you know, kind of outsized influence as a consequence. It was a smart strategic move. We should be doing the same with China. Um, for reasons geopolitical as well as related to AI. Um, we want to be connected. We want to be engaged. We want to be having those conversations. We want to figure out ways to collaborate and cooperate because taking them on, no way. That's a losing battle. That's that's you stepping into a ring with a young Mike Tyson and expecting that you've got a chance. No chance. It's, just, it's not a question of if. It's just a question of, is he putting you down in the first 10 seconds or is he going to toy with you a while and then just you know, smack you about and make you look like Robbie, ba- Ra- you know, Rocky Balboa and it'll be in the 15th round, but it's happening. You're
0: going to lose. Yeah. No, that, that's scary because I, I've been talking about China a lot. Cause I, I see what you're seeing is, you know, they, they are using the government to consolidate this information. And, you know, that's, that's one thing about, you know, their political structure is that they're able to do that and force these companies to do it. But the reason they're doing it is because they're aggregating all that data and using it to uh, benefit, you know, the, the whole over there. At least that's, you know, what the government believes there. Um, You know, they are, I think they are, they're breaking a lot of, you know, human, human rights issues, but uh, a lot of it is is just aggregating information. Um, And, you know, it's scary. That's
2: right. right. And it's, it's sort of the line, the line between machine learning and AI, right? Because at some level, you know, true AI shouldn't require a lot of data, if it's really intelligence, but it's not. I mean, of course, what we're, what we're really talking about is just machine learning at a massive scale. Where it's just, you know, the software has got, has been fed so much data that it's it's not necessarily intelligence. It just has the resources available to make decisions based upon, you know, algorithms that can just crawl through immense amounts of data and run those calculations in real time and come out with the sort of probabilities that make sense as, as a path forward. That's why the data is so important. And, and you know, so if someone really unlocks artificial intelligence, it. Kind of makes the data issue go away, but I think everybody sort of thinks we're a long ways from that, and it may never happen.
0: Yeah, and you know, like you said, uh, you know, you you believe it's China. You know, I see a lot of momentum there. I I do believe that China's uh, heading in a direction that's unstoppable. But you know, I I do still hope it's it's us. But I do I do see where you're, what you're saying. I, you know, I I do I do agree that from what I've what I've seen and what I've what I've researched, China's heading in a direction that's that's just
1: unstoppable. That'll that'll be a really tough pill for a lot of Americans to swallow. What you just said is going to be very, very alarming. And it's something that I don't think I've even allowed myself to give much thought to. But when you put it into words and when you think about all of these things you've seen in the news from the way they've handled TikTok and all of these different things, you know, it's that's really alarming to think about that because as Americans, we're so uh, conditioned to think we're the best there is, we're the best country in the world, which in a lot of ways is very true. Um, but in terms of some of the technological advancements and, and the way that some of these other companies are outpacing us in some of those things, it's an alarming thing to think about, and I think it's something that more people probably need to be aware of. It's a conversation we need to start having more. So I hope I hope having it on this episode kind of spurs that and people that you know it's going to be uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm uncomfortable right now. Yeah, no, I'm because I I just know how powerful yeah that
0: what the technology that they're yeah. developing and what companies here are trying to develop, you know, I, I know how powerful it is, but let's, uh, you know, that's a geopolitical issue, you know, massive world that's issue. Right. Let's, let's bring it local. <laughs> let's bring it local here for the end. Uh, let's talk about, you know, I mentioned at the, at the top of this episode, that you had an amazing perspective on this region. Um, let's talk about, you know, how have you seen things, how have you seen things change uh, in this region? And then we'll dive into some, specific, some some specifics, kind of give us a high level overview of, of what you've seen change.
2: Yeah. So when I started, you know, doing this stuff in the Midwest in the 90s, um, you know, there's every part of the country has got money, right? Because, you know, people have developed it. Families have developed it generationally. Um, there are large foundations that have been developed in different sorts of communities. There are different sorts of funds and investment vehicles that have started. So it's not as if, you know, the only place where money exists is in Silicon Valley. Money exists everywhere. It's just a question of where is it being deployed and how much. And as we've seen, you know Silicon Valley has been incredibly successful at sort of attracting and aggregating capital that's focused on investing in technology and life sciences. Um, other parts of the country have not been as successful in, in driving that process. The change that I've seen is that the money has, has always been here. The good news is there are now more startups to invest in. So, you know, when I did this in the late 90s, you know, basically all my work was representing um, investors because I had very few startup company clients because there just weren't that many startups, you know, but now there are gazillions of startups, you know, Louisville, Cincinnati, Columbus, Indianapolis, Chicago, Detroit, Nashville, St. Louis. I mean, you go to all these cities. And you know you see these ecosystems that are that are really growing, and it's awesome. It's awesome. So you know that's the difference. You know it's it's not we're seeing more money, but the money's always been there. Um, what we've got now is we actually have companies local, you know regionally that we can invest in.
1: Yeah, and I think that 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 kind of becomes its own wave, uh, its own network effect. So one of the stories we like to tell. Uh, On this podcast specifically, because it relates to Evan and Evan's experiences. You know, once there's a startup that kind of rises up in one of those ecosystems, you know, once you have a a good ecosystem, one will eventually rise up and hopefully have an exit. And then that kind of has this huge web effect where people who have the experience go out and start different things, but also that money can go out and start some different things too. And I know uh, mostly on the experience side with Fuji, that's kind of happened with Fuji. Fuji has spun off this podcast, it's spun off, you know, the CTO of the company that I work for several other companies around town. So I feel like that's kind of what's, what's happening here is that as more companies come and find some success, then that has this network effect and kind of grows the ecosystem more and more and more as it, as it progresses. Yep. Yeah, it's essential. It's and essential.
0: When you look at this, this region and this ecosystem, as far as support goes, what do you think it could be doing better? What, what do we need more of?
2: Mm. That's a really, it's a really good question. Um, and it's a tough one because, you know, what I wanna say is everything. Like, cause I always I I hate to be too like to pick one thing out because it sounds like I'm, you know, picking on people, but it is all it's all sort of related. Um, you know, we need this is not a popular position, but I'm gonna just say it. We need more ideas. You know, I know a lot of people are walking around and they're saying there are lots of ideas that aren't getting funded. I don't disagree. But, you know, we need more ideas we need more people percolating more ideas um then we need more people that are willing to get behind those ideas you know more entrepreneurs more founders more people willing to join these startup companies um you know it is it's important that we not just have the tip of the spear people but you know companies are built not just through the force of will of founders i mean it takes arms and legs and that whole, those other layers that live in the corporate hierarchy to build it and grow it and drive it forward. And we need people that are are willing to join these startups. And then, you know, we need smarter capital, you know, not just people who can write checks, you know, God love them. Um, I love those people and we need them, but people who can actually bring strategic insight, people who actually have a Rolodex, people who can make connections for these companies, People who can introduce them to not just future funders, but future buyers. You know, who's the angel that can write a check into a tech startup and say, you know, Salesforce ought to buy you someday. And I know somebody at Salesforce that is in that process. Let me make that connection for you. That just doesn't really exist um, to the extent that it needs to. Um, And that's what makes Silicon Valley go. It's not just the billions of dollars of management under management of course that's a big piece of it but it's those webs of relationships that just rinse and repeat you know that's what's so powerful and that's what we're st- we're still so thin um, in, in all all these other midwestern cities when it comes to linking together all these issues and creating those larger dimensions
1: yeah I think that's a lot of what we're trying to accomplish here too is you know one of the our favorite roles to play in this ecosystem is when people reach out to us trying to get connected and plugged into the ecosystem and that's one of the main ways we try to do this is through the right- through using digital media to scale all of this to scale you know spreading awareness about the kind of ideas that are going on here and hopefully kind of normalize like hey going into startups is there's a lot to there's a lot that can happen there you can have a really big impact on the company you're working with, and you can be working on a an idea you have a lot of passion for. Um, so I, I just had to take that moment to try and uh, give a little middle tech plug there. That's kind of what we're seeing as well, and that's what we're really trying to do. Um, so to kind of lead that into this last question here, um, we always liked in on, on a forward-looking statement. Uh, where do you see this region specifically going into the future, into the next five to 10 years?
2: Oh, it's all good. It's all good. You know, I, I'm incredibly bullish, and you, because you have to have a long-term view about it. I mean, I've, I look at this as this is, you know, the work of my lifetime, and you know, a life is lived, you know, like in the present moment, but it's also important to have perspective, and not just perspective over 12 months, but perspective over multiple generations. And I mean, I can tell you the difference between 2020 and 1996. Man, you know, in 1996, the so-called entrepreneurs still wore suits and ties. Okay. Like, now we're at a point where the investors don't even wear suits and ties. Even attorneys are finally breaking <laughs> free of, of suits and ties. And that's a small thing, and it's kind of funny, and, but it's important. You know, it's a cultural component of, of how this works. Like, being an entrepreneur is not something that you need to sort of say, um, you know, kind of whisper to the side, and people look at you and say, well, why aren't you working at Procter & Gamble, or why aren't you working at, you know, insert local big company here, or bank, or whatever. Instead, you tell people you're an entrepreneur, people think it's cool. That wasn't the case in 1996. So in 25 years, it's a massive leap. It's a massive leap. We can't compare ourselves to Silicon Valley. It's different. It's a different planet. Um, We can only compare ourselves to ourselves. And, you know, as we as we've grown and developed in our own unique way, we've made incredible progress and there's still so much good stuff ahead of us. We have all you know, there's money here. There are customers here. There are strong, talented people here. There are technology backbones here. I mean, it can absolutely happen. You know, we're not this is not, you know, kind of rural France in the 1500s. I mean this is a resource-rich region, and it's happening, and it will continue to happen. I'm super bullish.